Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Open up to Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, should be one in the pew in front of you. Feel free to use it. If you really don't have a Bible, feel free to take it. That's our gift to you, as long as you read it. I asked this in the first service. I didn't get a very good response, so it kind of killed my opening illustration. But we'll try it again. How many of you have ever tied a a string around your finger to remind you of something? Anybody? Three. Thank you. Four. There's another one. I thought that was a thing. I I thought this was something. I mean, there's pictures. You've at least seen or heard of the idea, right? Okay, good. I'm not a total idiot. Okay. So, people tie strings around their fingers, just not you people, (laughs) to remind them of of something. And I think part of it is we've come up with much better ways, let's be honest. Uh, I have a smartphone. I love it. I can put in a reminder. And at a certain time, even at a certain place, it can remind me of something. And you know the icon that pops up to let me know I have a reminder? It's a little hand with a finger up with a string around it. So there you go. We haven't come that far. Reminders are helpful. If you need to pick up milk on your way home because you're out of milk, you you put a little reminder or maybe a string around your finger. So every time you look at that string, you say, okay, I've got to remember to get milk. And as you're going out the door and you reach for the doorknob and you see that string, oh, right, I've got to remember to get milk on the way home. Reminders of something undone are helpful. But what if you have too many strings? What if everything you have to remember in your life becomes another string that piles up on your fingers and then, you know, summer's coming, so I hear, and so we're going to be wearing flip-flops and you start using your toes and tying strings on there too and soon you're just a, a mess of string because there's all these things, I can't forget these things, I have to remember them. What if, even after you finish the task, let's say you went and you got the milk and you took it home and you put it in the fridge and you didn't take the string off, So the next day, you look at your hand, oh, that string's there because I've got to get milk. And so you go and you get milk and you take it home and you put it in the fridge right next to the other one. And then later on that afternoon, I've got to get milk. And so you go and you get milk. Eventually, you tie another string on. I've got to get another refrigerator because I can't fit my milk. And you keep going and going and going. Now, that's silly, isn't it? But how many of us live our lives in that kind of silliness? I've got to do more. I've got to keep up. I've got to keep going. Today's passage talks about a reminder, a reminder of something important, and it's good to have this reminder. We'll look at what it is in a moment, but it's also important to understand at some point the string that is tied to remind us of something needs to be removed when the task is complete. And we're going to look at this through the lens of Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, and look at our sin and the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let's start by looking at this thing that is tied on, this reminder of our sin. And I'm calling the sermon today untied because that's exactly what happens through Jesus Christ. But first we need to look at that knot. And I praise God for double knots because if it wasn't for double knots, between my wife and I, we would be tying shoes all day constantly. If you don't know double knots, you make the bow and then you loop it around again. And that thing is not going anywhere until it does and you have to do it again. But generally, it's tied. We have a double knot in our life. 
And it's good to understand it. It's good to have that reminder of that string on our, our finger to say, yes, this is true. This is real. We need to understand it and be reminded of it. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It starts off by saying we needed, in history, as humanity, we needed a reminder that there is an issue. There is a sin problem in our life and in our world. And we don't want to look at that. We want to ignore it, and quite frankly, we want to forget about it. God says, no, you need a reminder. And so he puts in the law, this Old Testament law, this Jewish tradition, the set of rules, a system of sacrifices, and a place of worship, the tabernacle, and eventually the temple. And he put that system in place to remind us, which means to teach us and instruct us about sin and make sure we don't forget it. We need to be reminded. But it says the law is a shadow of the good things that are coming. This shadow here is like the idea of foreshadowing, pointing ahead to something that's coming. You can think of a sign. If you're going on a trip, let's say you're taking the family to Washington, D.C., and you say, we, we want to go and see the museums, tour the Capitol building, look at the monuments, and so we're driving from here to there. How long does it take to get to D.C.? What? Seven, eight, nine hours. My wife drives fast. So around there. <laughs> Sorry. Anybody wants to invite me over for lunch? I will <laughs> take it. So, <laughs> yep. Uh, so you're in the car, and, and it's been a long drive, right? And, and you finally pull up, and you're outside the city. You're kind of coming in, and there's a sign on the side of the road. I assume D.C. has this every city, I think, does. And it says, welcome to Washington, D.C., or city limits, or something like that. And, and somebody in the car, hypothetically, says, we've got to get a picture, right? Not necessarily my wife, but she might say that. We've got to get a picture. And, and hypothetically, the other person can, in the car might say, no way. Come on, we're almost there. Let's go. That would be me. She would win. So we'd get out and take the picture. Look, we made it. Seven-hour drive, here we are, Washington, D.C., click, get the picture, put it on Facebook so it's real and everybody knows it. And, and you're there, and then you get back in the car and you turn around and go home because you made it. <laughs> no. The sign was not the destination, was it? The sign pointed to the destination. You drive through the sign into the city to see what you came to see. It's the same way in Scripture. The Old Testament was planned intentionally by God not to be the destination, but it is an important sign pointing to the destination. The destination is the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And the repetition of the sacrifices in the Old Testament could only point to the need of our sin being removed. They were never meant to remove the sin themselves. And that's what the author of Hebrews has been dealing with really throughout the book, but especially in the past couple chapters. This idea of how do we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament 
and the greatness of the salvation through Jesus Christ. And now we need to look at this two-part knot. And I introduced this idea last week, and I'm not sure if I did a good job explaining it. I'm not sure if I'll do a good job this week, but I'll try again. Because it comes up in both passages. And it's that as we are reminded of sin, and we do need to be reminded of sin, we need to understand the two-part effect that sin has in our lives. And the two parts is that sin makes us unclean or unholy. It's like being dirty and we need to be cleansed. And the other side of it is that we are unrighteous. We are guilty and we need to be forgiven. So there's this two-part aspect and you see it here in verse 2. For the worshipers would have been cleansed. And he's pointing to the fact if the Old Testament sacrifices were enough, it would have cleansed the worshipers. So the fact that it's saying that wasn't enough, it didn't happen, means we still have a sin problem. Our sin has made us and makes us unclean. And the law reminded the people of that. And then he goes on, and would no longer have felt guilty. So those sacrifices did not remove the guilt that the people were feeling. It could only point it out. Now, at this point, We could choose to ignore this and move on, or we could dwell here for a second and say, what does this tell us about ourselves? Imagine a man commits multiple crimes, robs stores, cheats people out of money, pushes over little kids. He does awful things, horrible things. He's known in his life for just doing awful things. And and really, if you look at them and kind of look at his rap sheet, you would say, this guy needs to go to jail. He is guilty. He deserves to be punished. He should go to jail. But he shows up to work one day, and he puts on a black robe, and he picks up a gavel, and he sits up on a bench, and he looks out over his courtroom, and he's a judge. Is he qualified to be a judge in that instant? And I hope your answer would be no. Why is he not qualified? Because he is guilty. He cannot determine the rightness and wrongness of somebody else because he himself is guilty. And that needs to be dealt with. Let's look at another profession. Imagine a doctor is getting ready for an operation. And he puts on the the surgical robe, the surgical cap, the mask, the gloves. He's scrubbed in. He's washed. He's He's absolutely sterile. He's got the little booties on his feet. He's ready to go into surgery. And he can do that because he's clean. So when he touches things, his germs, his diseases that he has come in contact with won't be transferred because he's been made clean. And at that moment, a nurse busts into the operating room. Doctor, doctor, we have an emergency. It's trash day and nobody's taking out the trash. And the doctor says, I'll do it. And so he goes out in his surgical clothes, he goes around the hospital, and he collects all the trash, and he takes it out to the dumpster, and he he dumps it all in, it kind of splashes all over him, and the soup from last week that's moldy and stale and disgusting splashes up on his surgical robe, and he's got it all over his hands. And he walks into the operating room, and the other doctors look at him and say, you can't operate like that. And he goes, no, 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 it's fine, I'll, I'll just brush it off. I'm fine. Can he operate like that? No. Why? What's wrong? He's not clean. And so all of that 
disease and infection that he's been dealing with and the, the moldy soup and everything else is now on him and will be transferred by him to those around him. Do you see that two-part aspect? And hopefully by taking it to something absurd, you can see how important it is. And the Bible says we all have sinned. And the sin problem is a double knot. It is an uncleanness and an unrighteousness. We stand before God guilty and dirty. And the problem is so big that we can't take, a care, of, can't take care of it on our own. It is a fact that the law cannot clean us. Doing righteous acts, doing religious things, even doing them over and over and over again cannot fix the problem. And so God gave us the Old Testament law and the Old Testament system to the Jewish people to remind them, instruct them, inform them so they could see what their sin really is. Now, I'm guessing you didn't wake up today saying, man, I'm, I'm really struggling, feeling like I need to kill a bull or a goat and, and hope that that takes away my sin. I, I, we've dealt with this often in the book of Hebrews that what it's talking about is probably not what you're dealing with. So how do we take care of sin? What are some ways that we have tried to overcome sin in our culture? I think one way that we've tried to deal with sin is just to ignore it. I call this the scientific approach. Let's just pretend it doesn't exist. I can't see it, taste it, smell it. it, it's not a thing that I can put in a test tube, I can't do some experiment to find sin, so therefore good and evil don't really exist, there's just a natural world and natural laws, and that's all there is, and as long as we operate in line with the natural order of things, everything will be great. And then we had World War II and people operating on natural laws and in natural ways, according to scientific reasoning, incarcerated massive amounts of people, slaughtered them, put them to death, because they believed this was going to bring about some scientific end. And we had another war after that, and another one, and another one, and an atom bomb, and more diseases. And guess what? It didn't deal with the sin problem at all. But we've gone on from there. There's another way of dealing with sin. We can just accept it or even go further, embrace it. Well, this is the way I am. And because it's the way I am, it's therefore inherently moral and good. And you need to accept it. And you need to embrace it because it's the way I am. We define right and wrong by personal preference. It's simply right because I want it. I call this the current approach. This is the way that our society today is defining right and wrong. It is strictly by personal preference. If you believe something is right, you have the right to believe that. And not only that, but our society says you have the obligation to pursue that and to make sure everybody else conforms with you. The problem with this, frankly, is that it is absolutely unsustainable. The current knowledge and understanding of right and wrong based on strictly personal preference, cannot sustain any society at all. Let me just point out the inherent contradictions here. I'll just give you one example. The NCAA is a college sports organization, right? They run college sports. I'm not a college sports fan, okay? Not at all. How many of you are? I'm not going to say anything bad about college sports. Okay? It's okay to say, okay, that's fine. How does the NCAA divide up their sports? 
Is there one basketball team per school? Men's and women's. How do they divide up baseball? Can women play men's baseball? No, what do the women play? Softball. Is there in the NCAA, is there a women's baseball team? Do they allow the women to compete on the men's baseball team? No, right? Am I right here? In fact, I went on their website and I clicked sport after sport after sport, men's and women's, men's and women's, men's and women's. Absolutely segregated. The state passed a bill saying you had to use the bathroom of your gender identity. What did the NCAA do? We're going to boycott your state. How dare you force people to do something out of line with their personal choice of gender identity? Just think about that for a second. The absolute absurdity and hypocrisy of that stance right there. Now, blow that up and multiply it by millions and billions of decisions being made on that exact same logic. That's how our world today is trying to deal with sin. And guess what? It won't work, it never has worked, and it never will work. And it leads to absolute chaos. Now, some of you are just saying, amen. Amen, amen. Let's look at a third way. The third way of dealing with sin, I would say, is condemning it. This is what I would call the typical Christian approach. And I think we've all been guilty of it. It's easy to take God's word and hold it up against the TV screen while you're watching the news and say, see, look how wrong they are. And you go out to your neighbors, see, look how wrong you are. And we post on Facebook, see, look how wrong you are. This is so awful and you're all horrible, awful people and you're going to hell and God's word is right and you need to turn around. We just condemn sin. And we don't stop and read those phrases in Scripture that say, we're all sinners. To stop and know that every time we're pointing the finger at the sin in our culture, we need to turn around and say, that is me as well. I'm guilty. I'm broken. I'm stained. But also, condemning sin doesn't point to a cure. And here's the catch. When we as Christians only point fingers at sin, we're doing exactly what the Old Testament did. And we're going up to the point of simply reminding ourselves and other people of sin without actually doing anything about it. So you might not have woken up this morning and said, ah, I'm going to sacrifice a bull or a goat over and over again to deal with sin. But how many of us think as Christians, if we just yelled a little bit louder, this world would be a better place? It's the same thing. There's a fourth way of dealing with sin, and I'll call this God's way. He shows us our sin. He defines it in detail. He wants us to understand it, how serious it really is. He reminds us of our sin over and over again. But then he deals with the sin. He sends his son to die in our place. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. God didn't put into history on each one of our fingers over and over again just a reminder of our sins. He actually did something about it. Let's look at verses 5 through 14 as God unties this knot of sin. Look at verses 5 through 7. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, 
my God. This is a quote right out of the Old Testament, Psalm 40. It was written by David, and David loved the law. If you have any doubts about David loving the law, read Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in Scripture, and it is 100% entirely a praise of the law. In fact, he takes the Hebrew alphabet letter by letter and uses each one as a motivation to praise God for the Old Testament law. He loved the law because he saw in it this revelation from God of his character, his nature, his mercy, and his grace. But he also looked at it and said, it's a sign that points to something more. And there it says, a body you prepared for me. And we need to look at this psalm in two ways because David is writing about something that he doesn't even quite understand. He's writing about the coming Messiah. And that was understood in future generations that he was being led by God to write about something he didn't quite understand. But he was also writing about himself. And he's looking at the law and he's saying, look, I can sin and then I could give an animal. And then I could sin and then I could give an animal. And I could just keep doing this, and I guess according to law, I'm sort of kind of maybe okay. He said, but I don't think God wants the bodies of the animals. I think he wants me. Didn't God give me a body to live for him? Wouldn't it be better instead of killing all the little critters, wouldn't it be better if I just led an obedient life so they didn't have to die? But there's a problem with that. He understood, I can't. I can't live up to that standard. And so Jesus comes, the fulfillment of what David is writing about. And he came in an actual body. We call this the incarnation. God takes on flesh. And he was born and he lived among us. And guess what? He lived a perfect and sinless life. He came to perfectly live the will of God. God wanted us to understand our sin. But he wanted to point us to one who would perfectly live the sinless life. Because God's ultimate will was to deal with our sin, not just keep reminding us of it. So look at verses 8-10. through 10. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then I said, here am I, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What this passage is saying, as we talk about untying this knot of sin, Jesus did what we could not. He was perfect and holy and sinless. He wasn't marred by, touched by, infected by sin. And when he came, he says, that holiness that I have perfectly lived is given to, freely given to anyone who trusts in me as their Savior. And he takes our surgical gown and our day-to-day clothes that are just messed up and, and splashed with sin and disgusting things that we did years before and yesterday and today, and he takes those and he says, I'm going to give you my righteous clothes untouched by sin. And so he unties the first part of that knot. We are made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. 
And then we come to verses 11 through 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, speaking of Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has been made perfect forever or by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Look at what it says about the Old Testament. Every day the priest had to get up. Every day they had to go into the tabernacle. Every day every day they had to offer these sacrifices over and over and over again. It says every day he stands. Remember that one because it's going to come up later. He stands. He doesn't get to sit down because he's not done yet. The Old Testament priest had to keep going. Every sacrifice had to be followed by another and another and another because they couldn't actually do away with the sin. They were just a reminder. Some of you might be too young to remember. There was a commercial, I think it was in the 80s or 90s, from Dunkin' Donuts, the guy that would get up early in the morning, time to make the donuts. Do you remember this guy? Love those commercials. Poor guy, every day he's just... Dragon, it's time to make the donuts. And he goes into the, the donut shop and he's making these mounds and mounds of donuts. And the next day they're all gone and he, so he drags himself back in. Time to make the donuts. That's what trying to deal with our own sin is. We're just chasing our tail. We're just doing it over and over and over again thinking this time it will be different. Maybe this time it will be better. And no, it's not. And we've got to start again. But look at the difference with Jesus. Jesus offered one sacrifice himself. His body, his blood in our place once. And then he didn't get up the next day and go, I got to go to the cross again. He said, it's finished. It's done. And the scripture says he sits down. Why? Because he's done. He has accomplished salvation once for all to all who believe his sacrifice is enough. And then it says, and I love this little phrase here, since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Understand what's going on there. When a king conquered other kings, those kings would have to bow down before him. And it was taken as this idea of being a footstool. You're sitting right there at my feet because I am Lord over you and I have conquered you and you have no power anymore. In Christ, what this passage is saying is, He's already won. The battle is over. It has been determined. He has declared victory completely over every power that ever is and ever will be. And He's waiting for us to get it. He's waiting right now for that time that the world powers, the political powers, the social powers, our cultural issues will wake up and go, He really is Lord of Lord and God of God. And that day will come when he comes back. And in between is this time of grace for the gospel to work for those of us who deserve to be a footstool subjugated to Christ to be lifted up through the gospel and sat next to him as a child of Christ. And he's waiting. And then it says, verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. Stop there for a second. Think about what that's saying. It's finished. It's done. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
the guilt of your sin, the stain of your sin is gone forever. It's already finished. God's not looking at you and said, well, today was okay, but tomorrow let's do a little bit better. I think we can do better. And someday you get to heaven and he goes, well, you kind of blew it at this point. I don't know. Let's weigh it all out. He says, no, I look at Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He was perfectly holy and righteous. It's done once for all. But then look at the next phrase. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I've said at various times that that we use the NIV here. Nothing sacred about it. It's just a decent translation. And sometimes I say, you know, the NIV blew it. They totally got this one right. And some of the other ones got it wrong. If you have the, the New American Standard Version, I believe it says, one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who have been made holy. That's wrong. It's not what the Greek says. The Greek says it's an absolute contradiction. It's intentional. It's saying, it's finished, it's done, you're made holy, and you are being made holy. Both are true. God looks at you, and if he's judging whether you have arrived or not as a Christian, whether you're going to make it or not, he looks at Jesus Christ and he says, it's finished, it's perfect, it's done. But then each and every day he says, you're a work in progress, and I am making you the very holiness that I have already applied to you. Keep going in faith, trusting what God is doing in your life. Through Christ's perfect and sinless life and complete sacrifice for our sins, the two-part, the double knot of our sin problem has been completely untied and done away with. But there's one more thing. Because if the task is done, why do we still sometimes hold on to the guilt? Why do we still cling to the infection. We need to understand there's no more string. It's been done away with. God has untied the knot and He's taken the string of that reminder and He has discarded it. Look at what this says in verses 15-18. through 18. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, He says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put My laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then He adds, and listen to this, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Think about where this passage began. Look back at at verse 3. The animal sacrifices of the Old Testament are an annual, what? Reminder of sin. And then the passage ends in Christ. I will remember their sins no more. God doesn't have a bunch of strings on His finger for your sin. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, every sin you have ever committed and ever will commit has been forgiven. And God's not standing up there and saying, well, yeah, I've forgiven you, but that one time, that was really awful. He says, I've I've let it go. I've forgiven you. I've taken the string off my finger. I've thrown it away to the deepest depths of the ocean. It's gone. I will never hold this against you again. And that's kind of where I want to end today. Because if this is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, what about us? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there's some of you here today and you've got a whole bunch of strings on your fingers. And you could sit here and you could list for me all the things you've done wrong. 
And you could sit here and you could talk about all the methods and means you've tried to get over it. Maybe it's been to ignore it. Maybe it's been to just embrace it. Maybe it's even been to condemn it. And you've pointed the fingers at yourself and you say, look how awful I am. I'm going to invite you today. Let God deal with it. Because He already has. The victory is already there through Jesus Christ. Let God take that string off your finger today. Come to Him and say, God, You are God and I am not. You sent Your Son to die in my place and I accept that that sin, my sin, has been forgiven completely. And through Your Son, I am washed clean. And maybe you're here today and you have accepted Christ. Think what this is saying about how great the salvation is through Jesus Christ. Your sin is gone. And each and every day is an opportunity for you to live out the victory that Christ has already accomplished for you. You don't wake up trying to please God, trying to make His will happen. You get to wake up saying, it's already done and I just get to live it out now. There's so much joy and comfort in that. Take the string off your finger. Come to Christ. Get to know Him more. Put reminders in your life of His grace and His mercy and His truth. See how He has forgiven you and cleansed you from all sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, The Gospel is so easy, a child can understand it in a moment. And yet we will spend eternity exploring the depths of this powerful truth of what Christ did for us through the cross and resurrection. And we praise You for Your Word that leads us deep into these difficult issues. And I pray that through Your Holy Spirit at work in us, You would transfer those issues, interpret them for us, help them to see how we do the same things. God, there are people here today, I'm sure, that need these things applied to their life. And I am not you, and I cannot see the depths of their heart, nor would I want to. But you do. And right now, I pray that you would take this message, a message that is hard to hear about our own sin, but is wonderful to hear about how you have untied that knot and discarded it forever through your Son, Jesus Christ. Take that message. Challenge them with it. And for those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, may we praise you at a depth of praise and worship unheard of from our own lips. May we understand this truth and declare it back to you. May we get up tomorrow morning and live this truth And say, I am forgiven. I'm going to live it out. And may we take this gospel into this world that is tied up by sin in so many ways and say, let me show you and tell you about Jesus Christ. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. Amen.